Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at thesustainabilityagenda.com. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EGF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Genevieve Gunther to the podcast. Genevieve is an author and activist. Her work focuses on the role of language in climate change, drawing on sociology, psychology, philosophy and literary theory to critique current forms of climate communication. She's the founder and director of End Climate Silence, a volunteer organisation that pushes the news media to cover the climate crisis with the urgency it deserves. So thank you very much, Genevieve, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your wonderful work. And uh, maybe just to begin, uh, if you can tell us a little bit about your background, it's quite unusual, (laughs) and how you ended up uh, uh, becoming a a climate activist. It is indeed unusual. Um, I mean, I've changed my career twice. When I was quite young, I was a ballerina. I danced with New York City Ballet and then stopped dancing and went to university. And in university, I fell in love with Shakespeare. So I went on to graduate school and I got my doctorate in Renaissance literature at UC Berkeley. And then, you know, wrote a book about the relationship between magic and aesthetics in the English Renaissance um, and taught Shakespeare for many years. But then... um, When I had a baby, my son was born in 2010, I had quite an extended maternity leave because he was born in January. And so I didn't teach that whole semester and I didn't teach that summer. So I had a lot of time to read the newspaper and I read deeply into the science section. And what I was reading about the climate crisis really began to alarm me. Um, And becoming a mother also really sort of changed my perspective I had always had my focus on my own career and the next five years and what I needed to do that day. But all of a sudden, I realized that, you know, I had brought this little person into the world with my husband who hadn't asked to be born and he was going to live on after we died. And in fact, his life was going to sort of play out over the 20th century when, according to the IPCC, we would either halt global heating by phasing out the general use of fossil fuels, or you know, we would 
or not we, because I won't be alive anymore, but my son and the children of his generation will, you know, live through this unraveling of the climate system, which has sustained human civilization um, over the past tens of thousands of years. So all of a sudden I started to feel like I needed to do something. And of course, you know, being a new mother, this didn't sort of take form immediately. Um, I still had an idea that I wanted to continue to write about Shakespeare. But, you know, as the years went on, I actually formally changed my research focus. I also gave up tenure at the university where I was teaching and moved to New York because my husband and I were in a long distance marriage. And I really sort of became much more committed to family than I ever thought I was going to be after having a baby. So um, I continued to teach Renaissance literature at the New School for some years. But then at one point, I formally changed my focus to the climate crisis. And so I was reading, I was reading in echo criticism and the stuff that the humanities was doing with respect to the climate crisis in the Anthropocene. Um, I started reading the sociology of climate communication, the psychology of climate communication. I took climate activist training with Al Gore's climate reality project, but I was sort of not hundred percent engaged yet. And then in 27, so this went on for years. And then in 2017, the New York Times hired a columnist named Brett Stevens, who had been um, at the Wall Street Journal. And Brett Stevens was a kind of supposedly centrist Republican um, for people in the UK. You know, of course, Republicans are people on the right wing. Um, but he was also a really strikingly inveterate climate denier. <laughs> <laughs> really thought that climate science was a, a religion um, that was being presided over by, you know, singularly unattractive people who were trying to um, scare people into making these changes to the economy that we couldn't afford. I mean, it was really just sort of all of his arguments about the climate crisis were sort of the greatest hits of the climate denial that had been you know, cooked up in think tanks since the early aughts and spread throughout the media sphere on the right wing. And I was so appalled, I was so outraged that the paper of record in the United States, the New York Times, thought that this kind of climate denial was legitimate political commentary in 2017, that I wrote a petition on this little website called change.org, trying to get them to rescind their job offer <laughs> to Brad Stevens. Um, and amazingly, the petition ended up getting 40,000 signatures, which I have been led to understand is quite a lot for an initiative like that. And it really made a huge splash. And in the process of trying to promote this petition, I ended up on Twitter, which I hadn't really used before because, of course, I was a Renaissance scholar Luddite who didn't care about any of the social media technologies of the 21st century. But I ended up on Twitter and on Twitter, I got connected with climate scientists who were also speaking out against the Stevens hire. And I got connected to science journalists, environmental journalists, other activists. And all of a sudden, I sort of fell into a community of people, energy scholars who were also concerned and alarmed and working on the climate crisis. And then when Stevens published his first column for the New York Times, which was called, I think, Climate of Complete Certainty, I realized something about the way that the climate deniers had been using uncertainty up until that point. So as the historian of science, Naomi Oreskes, has shown 
climate deniers took this playbook from the tobacco people and hired scientists to do kind of tendentious research and spread the message that the science of climate change was too, quote unquote, uncertain to really motivate any large scale changes in policy. And so Brett Stevens reiterated this argument in his first column for the New York Times. But, you know, I had just read all this climate science myself. And I had also taken a couple of college level courses in climate science through various online platforms. So I knew how climate scientists generally define the concept of uncertainty. And it's very different than the way that most people understand the word. So most people think of the word uncertainty as meaning a state of being unsure or something like that. So you're going out to eat in a restaurant and the server says, what would you like? And you say, well, I'm uncertain. I don't know whether I'd like the chicken or the fish. Please go around the table and come back to me. So we understand generally uncertainty as meaning a state of being unsure, not really knowing. But climate scientists use the word uncertainty as a synonym for confidence because the uncertainty means that it means a range of possible outcomes that you can predict with confidence. And of course, scientists use uncertainty in this kind of colloquial way also, but when they're communicating their science, when they talk about the uncertainty of the science, they, talk, they mean the range of outcomes that can be predicted with confidence. So having been a literary scholar who is very attuned to the ambiguities of words, and how these ambiguities signify differently for different audiences and how that signification has different political effects. I all of a sudden realized what the rhetorical dimension of this disinformation strategy had been. And all of a sudden, I came up with an idea for a book, um, which then I decided I was the only one who could possibly write. <laughs> and I underwent to research and start writing this book. So that's what I've been working on for this past, these past years. The book is now called The Language of Climate Politics. And it takes up the nine words that dominate the way we think and talk about climate politics or the, really the climate crisis in the United States. And then at a certain point, I also founded a volunteer organization called End Climate Silence, which is devoted to pushing the news media to cover the climate crisis with the urgency and the quality it deserves. Um, because I do believe that most Americans at least learn everything they know about the climate crisis from the news media. And right now, the quality and the quantity of coverage is truly appalling. So to me, that was a very important element of trying to raise a movement or even just raise voter awareness enough to have the necessary policies passed at the federal level. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm writing this book, I'm directing this group and Climate Silence. And right now in particular, and Climate Silence is spearheading a campaign to try to get the New York Times to stop writing advertisements for oil and gas companies. So that's what I work on in my day. Right, right. Very, very interesting indeed. Um, now, you've had some time uh, at, at a very close proximity to, to study and uh, see what's happening environmentally, what's happening climatically. Uh, we're in the middle of a number of um, interlocking environmental crises. What in particular right now is most on your mind, Genevieve? Well, right now, the thing I'm most concerned about is whether... Um, federal climate policy is going to get passed in the United States as a part of this budget bill that 
um, Congress is sort of hammering out as we speak. So, um, you know, President Biden ran as a climate president. He ran advertisements promising to address the climate crisis. He mentioned it in most of his speeches. He um, had it on his website as a you know pillar of his platform. And um, as soon as he was elected, he actually stopped talking about the climate crisis and started instead talking about jobs. So what he's done is kind of bundled his climate policies into what he's calling his jobs program, which he's trying to pass in a sort of budgetary practice in order to kind of get around um, the inveterate climate denial of much of the U.S. Senate. Um, But of course, there are actually Democrats in the party um, who are working with the fossil fuel industry and don't want to have climate policy passed. And indeed, President Biden himself has proved to be ambivalent about making the transitions that we need to make in order to halt global heating. I mean, he's allowed fossil fuel drilling in auctions to proceed in the Gulf. He's approved more permits than um, the Trump administration itself. His administration filed a amicus brief in a court case in Alaska trying to block a new oil drilling project that the Trump administration had sued to push forward. So it seems the possibility of passing federal climate policy in the United States right now seems very tenuous. And, you know, as we know, because the climate crisis is a crisis of our global economic system, our global infrastructure, there isn't any way to solve it without the marshalling the resources and the organizational capacity of governments. So right now, the thing I'm most worried about is how do we get that climate policy passed in Congress? And right now, there have been green groups who have done a wonderful job writing the policy so that it has the highest likelihood of passage and lobbying in a really effective way to put the policy on the agenda and to get most senators and Congress and representatives, House representatives interested in it. But right now there's no outside game as far as I can see. Um, The public isn't motivated around this issue because nobody has been messaging on it. So, um, you know, I do what I can in my tiny way, but again, it's like individuals can't just as individuals can't solve the climate crisis by reducing their carbon footprint only, you know, individual activists can't message this to the extent that it needs to be messaged. So that's what's concerning me the most right now. Um, Because as far as I'm concerned, you know, we should all keep our attention on the human element of this, the political element of this and work on what we can control. So that's where I'm putting my focus. And also that's, you know, the, the dimension of this that can possibly solve the problem, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Now, um, most people, I guess, wouldn't be surprised to, to, to learn that the fossil fuel industry has an agenda and how it talks about climate change. Um, you mentioned Naomi Oreskes and the, the you know and, and and the playbook that was taken from the from the smoking from, uh, tobacco industry and so forth. But I, I, I wonder, do we still really underestimate? the impact of the fossil fuel lobby, the the way it operates, the impact it has on communications, its systematic approach. I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about, you know, just how influential is the fossil fuel industry in terms of uh, 
controlling or directing, shall we say, the way we talk about uh, and, and, and respond to, to global warming? Oh, it's 100%. I mean, the fossil fuel industry is extremely influential in the way that we all talk about the climate crisis, um, in part because, as the research of this journalist Amy Westervelt and Darna Noor will show in a podcast that's being released in a few weeks, um, the fossil fuel industry has actually lobbied public education institutions in the United States and has managed to get various elements of the curriculum shaped by their political agenda so that the ideas underlying their communications and lobbying strategy have already been normalized by the time Americans leave secondary school and before they even go into university. So it's a very comprehensive and very um, all-encompassing, I mean, to be redundant, it's a very comprehensive messaging strategy, which begins at, at, you know, the primary school level. So that's one thing. And then, then there's, of course, fossil fuel advertising, which appears in the news media and not just the right-wing news media, but, you know, the New York Times, for example. So on the New York Times website, if you Google climate change, you will be offered a series of articles about the climate crisis, but you will also be offered advertisements for oil and gas companies that have very often been written by the New York Times advertising branch itself so that the ad looks like a piece of New York Times journalism. So the quality and the excellence of New York Times journalism is lending credibility to this dense information. And I mean, it perhaps goes without saying that these advertisements um, not only misrepresent the role of oil and gas companies, both in causing and solving the climate crisis, um, but also, you know, promote fossil fuels directly, promising that natural gas will be, for example, that methane gas will be a cornerstone of a decarbonized economy, which we know, of course, is not at all true. So there is fossil fuel advertising, there's education, but then there's also sort of lobbying in the federal government and in state governments and fossil fuel supporters in those governments are given sort of messaging memos, giving them language that they need to reproduce in order to um, dominate the political conversation about the climate crisis. And what's interesting is that it's not simply Republican politicians who use this language. It's also people in the Democratic Party and sometimes indeed people in the Biden administration use this language. So there's this kind of overall narrative which dominates the way we think and talk about the politics of climate change. And it's used by both Republicans and Democrats, which makes it seem unassailable or in some way sort of just simply the way things are. And the narrative goes something like this. Um, yes, climate change is real, but to call it dangerous is alarmist and political. And anyway, decarbonizing our economy would cost us too much. The health of our families relies on the economic growth enabled by fossil fuels. So we need to keep using them and deal with climate change by increasing our innovation and our resilience. And the radical left only likes policies like the Green New Deal because it wants to cancel our freedoms. And in any case, 
The West cannot act unilaterally on the climate crisis because India and China, something, something, something. So there are, of course, variations of this, but that is the sort of core message cooked up by the fossil fuel industry and disseminated through our political and media spheres. And it is preventing us from not only um, seeing what the true problem is, but it's also preventing us from envisioning and desiring and implementing the solutions. Right. And are you saying that is this, you know, one or two large PR companies? Uh, I mean, you make it sound like it's quite systematic and deeply embedded. It is quite systematic and deeply embedded. It um, it comes from oil and gas companies and large donors like, you know, the Koch brothers, for example, partnering with, quote unquote, think tanks in Washington to come up with things that look like policy memos, but are actually messaging memos, which they then partner with PR firms and advertising firms to amplify. Um, and then, of course, with the right wing media sphere. Um, but interestingly, part of the reason this is so effective is what they do, I've found in my research, and this is part of what my book is about, is they go into academic discourse. They go into the work of sustainability researchers, of economists, of climate scientists themselves, and they extract kind of key words, which they then weaponize to their own purposes. So a really good example of this is the concept of the carbon footprint. So the fossil fuel industry, their advertising strategy right now is kind of twofold. The first part of it is trying to present themselves as legitimate partners in the clean energy transition. So they always sort of vaunt their research into you know, biofuels or wind or alternative energy sources or carbon capture and storage or whatever, um, as if they were hard at the table, you know, hard at the table trying to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. But of course, if you look at the numbers, the International Energy Agency shows that the fossil fuel industry spent as a whole spent less than 1% of its capital in, I think it was 2019, on research into zero carbon technologies, less than they spend on advertising themselves. And of course, their investment into upstream oil and gas reserves, meaning finding new oil and gas to extract and burn and sell, um, or extract and sell and burn, um, rose in 2019 and is projected to rise even more in 2021. So in other words, instead of trying to help solve the climate crisis, they are simply trying to find and sell the very more of the very fossil fuels which are causing global heating. So that's one thing. But then the second thing is they also, in their advertisements, encourage people to take a look at their own carbon footprints, right? This is a very key element of their messaging strategy. They're trying to get people to believe that what will solve the climate crisis is individual action to lower our own carbon footprints. And this has two political effects. First of all, it, it's a form of ledger demand, basically. It's a form of like getting people to look in one direction so that they don't see what's happening with the other hand. They want people to be worried about 
individual action about consumer choice because they don't want people to see that this is a political problem that's going to get solved by government action. They don't want people to see the political dimension of it. So there's that element of it. But then there's also the psychological element, which is to make people feel overwhelmed and depressed and want to give up and stop engaging with the climate crisis because, of course, it's totally impossible to reduce your carbon footprint to zero or even close to where it needs to be when the entire world runs on fossil fuels unless you want to be a hermit. I mean, there's no economy and there's also no culture that we live in right now where you can participate in the world and not use fossil fuels. So they want people to feel like this problem is impossible to solve and not see it as a systemic problem that has systemic solutions that can be implemented by governments. So that concept of the carbon footprint, however, they didn't make it up. They found it in sustainability research because it is indeed an element of the decarbonization project right? Individual carbon footprints, especially among the top 1% and even among the top 10% do need to be reduced. And discretionary emissions absolutely need to be attacked and reduced significantly. But that is a very different definition or domain for the carbon footprint than that elevated by the fossil fuel industry. So in that case, they went into academic research into the climate crisis, extracted a concept and managed to distort it to their own purposes. But that doesn't mean that people who are working on the climate crisis have stopped talking about carbon footprints. I mean, this is also part of the problem, right? So now they've made it so that anyone who mentions the word carbon footprint seems to be amplifying fossil fuel messaging, even though there is a legitimate argument to be made that the rich have to be shamed out of some of their discretionary emissions. So they managed to sort of muddy the waters, confuse the discourse, and kind of weaponize what is legitimate academic research to their own purposes, thereby sort of dominating the conversation from all quarters. So this is how they do it. And it's very insidious, but I think that um, the more people who are aware of it, the less power that strategy is going to have. That's very interesting. I, and I've been interested to see just how the, I guess what they, some people call the kind of doomsters, the you know, global warming mm-hmm. doomsters, is, it's quite a, it's a growing phenomenon. And, and particularly among young people as well, a feeling of helplessness, a feeling of overwhelm. Yeah, I mean, I I completely get it. I sometimes feel overwhelmed and helpless myself. Um, I think it's partially because people, especially young people, see that politicians, our governments, aren't really working to solve this problem in a way that they could be. But I think that that feeling of looking around and seeing the people in power not caring about your life leads to a feeling of doom instead of outrage because for the past 40 years we've forgotten what it means to act collectively to use civil disobedience and even just civic engagement to push our democratically elected representatives to represent our interests at the table of power. So 
I think we've all been socialized in the neoliberal era to feel like problems need to be solved by us individually or in our local communities. And we don't, we don't have a culture right now of collective action, which is of course what we need in order to push the people in power out of power and install people who will actually solve this problem. So I think that people default to doom because they don't imagine that political action is available to them. Um, And I also think that they default to doom because outrage, because the climate crisis in the media is consistently represented as a kind of expression of the natural world, nature biting back, or some sort of you know, disaster that's getting vested on us for our sins or something that, that the planet kind of impersonal forces is doing and not something that human beings are doing. So like if you imagine the bombing of Dresden or something, or if you imagine sort of the blitz, let's, let's do it that way. If you imagine the blitz, okay. This would be akin to sort of looking at the blitz and looking at the rubble caused by the blitz and saying that, you know, people in Britain were suffering because, you know, there were fires in their community and buildings fell down around them without ever talking about the German planes that had, you know, flown over the channel and bombed them. And in some sense, that's how we're talking about the climate crisis, right? These emissions that are causing heating, which are causing extreme weather. And really, we need to be talking about it as the political and economic decisions that actual people in power are making to cause those emissions to begin with. That is where we need to be focusing our attention. And I am pretty confident that once people start focusing their attention there, the feeling that they're going to feel is less overwhelm and doom, even though, of course, grief, doom, overwhelm is all part of the mix. But I suspect that the feeling that will be inspired by that locus of attention is outrage. And that's what we need to cultivate because it is actually, I want to curse, but I won't. It is bloody outrageous <laughs> that, that the people in power are destroying our entire world irreversibly just so that they can continue the system as it is today, so that they can continue their own power, their own pleasure, their own wealth. It is, it is, it is absolutely disgusting. And I, I, what, I, makes it, what makes it even more vile is while telling you that they are fixing it at the time. Oh, oh, that is a form of psychological abuse called gaslighting. You know, it's, it's, it makes, it makes what they're doing, um, you know, outright sociopathic because it means that they know what it could be like if they were fixing it and they're still not doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, of course, uh, whatever we, 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 we say about the state of, uh, I guess, media or, or uh, awareness or with respect to uh, global warming, climate change, America's uh, more extreme in many ways. But in the UK as well, and certainly in the last year and the, and the data, has, I think, just been released, some interesting data about 
uh, a fall off in the uh, coverage and uh, mm-hmm. discussion of global warming or climate change and and, and so forth. And uh, a, a big, a big question, and I'm sure that it's something you've looked at quite closely, is, is um, and this may be changing due to the extreme weather we've been seeing, but it's joining the dots and connecting up what's going on in terms of the climate and indeed other kind of catastrophes with the underlying uh, environmental and climate uh, change. You are completely right. That's exactly what the what the task is. And that is exactly what the news media, at least the broadcast news media in the United States, consistently fails to do. Um, so what we are trying to um, normalize it and climate silence is this idea that climate change is not a science story. It's not an environment story. You don't cover climate change by doing sort of segments on it or just stories on it. You actually have to understand that the climate is a part of every story that you tell as a reporter, as a journalist. And very often it's a huge part. It's an explicit agent in the story you're telling as a journalist. But again and again, you will see these stories about extreme weather, for example, or about energy, or about geopolitics, or about immigration, or about real estate, which are clearly stories about the unfolding climate crisis. And journalists will sometimes even say, like, for example, what science has said the climate crisis has contributed to a particular instance of extreme weather, but they won't actually say the words explicitly climate change or global heating. Um, so this is what we're pushing them to do. Like, I know I just said that we should all have our attention on the human element of this, but the first step I think is to even just get the news media when they're reporting on extreme weather and describing how the climate crisis has made that extreme weather worse or more frequent or more intense, that they actually explicitly, as you say, connect those dots, right? So that, you know, they don't need to tell different stories. They don't need to hire new journalists. They just need to understand that in this era, while this is happening, every journalist is in some sense a climate journalist. And they have a professional and moral responsibility not to be silent about what is actually happening because that silence is a subtle form of climate denial. Yes. What's your sense of what's going on? Why is the media, um, and I I suppose your your experience more in the US, but so averse to uh, being explicit, making the connection, talking about it in that way. And and connection to that is, what's your experience of actually changing the way the media talks about this? Well, I mean, I think that it's a you know overdetermined problem, which is why it's challenging to solve. But I mean, I do think that the um, fossil fuel lobby has, and in that category, I include right wing politicians in the states, has successfully polarized the climate crisis so that just iterating the facts as a journalist might make you seem to have a liberal bias. Um, I think that's been part of it. I think that journalists are starting to shake that off a little bit. Um, They are starting to realize that they've been played and they're starting to see that um, the climate crisis is just an ignore, you know, it's just an ignorable, like 
it's you can't pretend it's not happening. So it's and then also the Trump administration covering the Trump administration has made people more comfortable with just saying the facts without doing a kind of both sides journalism that seems like a form of objectivity, but is really just a form of sort of gossiping. So there's that. I think they haven't changed their paradigm very much. So they sit around the table, at least the broadcast news producers and reporters will sit around a table to decide on the stories. And they don't think that they have time to tell a climate story because they're doing a sort of breaking news story about, you know, I don't know, a hurricane in the Gulf. And they simply don't realize that that story about the hurricane in the Gulf is the climate story. Um, And so they don't need to actually take time out to do a whole segment. They can simply connect the dots, as you say, in the segments that they're already doing. But they still haven't sort of made that kind of paradigmatic shift to see that every story is a climate story. And And then more complicated, I think the executives of most broadcast news organizations are, you know, extremely wealthy, um, relatively conservative, even if they're Democrats, people who don't get climate change or might even be slight climate deniers themselves. And they don't, they haven't given the sort of implicit blessing from above that'll allow producers anchors, reporters to talk about this freely. And so I think there's pressure from above. And I think that pressure is coming ultimately because these executives think of themselves as selling an entertainment product that delivers eyeballs to their advertisers. As we, saw during, the, as we saw during the Trump era more than anything. Exactly. And so fossil fuel advertising in the broadcast news space is huge. It's a huge source of revenue for them. And so I think that they really don't want to alienate their advertisers. It's complex, as you say, and there's the day-to-day media seed, there's the the, uh, background of the executives and so forth. And there is this broader sense in which the news has become entertainment, uh, the cutback and the news uh, function in, 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 in many media companies. So these are broad, uh, complex forces in play that aren't just about climate change, are they? Um, and I'm just wondering, what are the prospects? How do you change uh, the, the, the attitudes and, 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 and the publishing behavior of, of large uh, multinational, uh, large, large media companies? Do, do, is social media got a role to play here? Certainly on social media, you see a lot more awareness uh, about what's going on, about the, the communication strategies, about the way in which people are or are not talking about this. As an organization, what is End Climate Silence doing and what's most effective in terms of change? We've always used digital activism. Um, we've never done a, you know, in-person march or, <laughs> or you know, a sit-in or um, any of that. So all of our activism has been online. We, so it's me and a few volunteers and researchers. And so the researchers will comb the news um, coverage, identifying stories where climate should have been mentioned and wasn't. And so we will reach out by email very often and not get a response. And then we will take to Twitter, which is kind of the public sphere for people who work in media, to 
kind of try to drum up some outrage about the fact that climate wasn't in the story when it clearly should be. And, you know, that strategy was remarkably um, viable, let's say. I mean, it, it was actually kind of successful with print journalists. I think it did manage to kind of um, change the practices in some major newspapers. And it certainly established this paradigm that the climate crisis is not a science or environment story. It's an everything story among print journalists. And, you know, I think it's because writers really care about the reception of their work and they care about the way they've written their stories, you know, and as an ex-English professor, I'm pretty good at sort of, you know, like editing things and suggesting different ways to do things. And so I think I was speaking their language also, um, you know, to some degree, it it obviously can be remarkably improved. Like one of my colleagues, Brad Johnson at End Climate Silence is always saying, okay, now the next thing is we have to stop getting them to connect it to the climate crisis. And we need to stop, start getting them connected to fossil fuels itself. And that's correct. You know, there's more work to do, but with the broadcast news media, like they didn't, this digital activism that we were doing didn't have any effect whatsoever. Cause as you say, there are huge multinational corporations and they don't care what activists say on Twitter. Um, and, you know, after a year or 18 months of sort of banging our heads against the wall, we really decided that the problem was fossil fuel money in journalism, like that the whole process was so corrupt that there was no sort of argument that you could make that would overcome the corruption of the very endeavor itself. So that's why we've pivoted a bit and now are now focusing on trying to get fossil fuel advertising out of journalism entirely. And we've started with the New York Times because the New York Times um, is both someone is both an institution that um, cares about its reputation as the kind of um, protector of the discourse of the reality-based community and of a kind of sort of reasonable centrism. Um, um, but is also like hugely influential, right? So if the New York Times decided to stop writing and running fossil fuel advertising, that would be, you know, something that would be something that I think broadcast news executives would take note of. Um, and we would have more hope of getting them to, you know, start refusing fossil fuel advertising themselves. I mean, it's not just activists in the United States. Um, there is going to be a hearing um, where the fossil fuel executives are being called in front of Congress to testify about their disinformation strategies. And because such, you know, because advertising is such a large fraction of their disinformation budget and their disinformation um, domain. Uh, I think that fossil fuel ads are going to come up in this hearing in front of Congress. And I think that's going to also make it much more uncomfortable for news media organizations to be colluding with the fossil fuel industry to be spreading this disinformation because there it is in Congress. You know? um, well, I know your optimism. I mean, we've seen, seen Facebook in front of Congress and committees and so forth. It doesn't seem to have had much impact. Or, no, or that's true. 
Yes, yes. Uh, but underlying this as well, and uh, you can talk a little bit about this, is people's values as well. So mm-hmm. there is a connection between, uh, you know, free market values and, and you know, pro-government and pro, you know, and, and more left uh, uh, perspectives, you know, and the role mm-hmm. of the government. So, you know, people are uh, want to downplay global warming because they think that's going to give you know results in big government and things like that so mm-hmm. that, that's another layer in there as well isn't it that connection which is very important oh absolutely i mean i actually don't think oh no absolutely i mean i i well i was going to say that i don't think people have genuine sort of um free market beliefs as a sort of philosophical commitment that really drives their whole life um i think people uh, vaunts its free market in order to continue to use the government to their own ends. <laughs> because, of course, you know, the fossil fuel industry is being subsidized by governments across the globe, you know, to the tune of like multi hundreds of billions of dollars, even, you know, depending on how you calculate the subsidy, trillions of dollars a year. So it's not that, you know, these, these, right-wingers don't like government handouts. They just want them to be directed to them and not to other people. Um, So I'm not sure I believe, I also don't really believe in values as something that people just hold and that you have to kind of um, appeal to. I believe that people's values are produced by the language that we use to think and talk and the culture in which we live. And those values are malleable and can be transformed. I mean, um, uh, we see black lives matter and, and things and campaigns like that. And, and, and people's attitudes do change a hundred percent. I mean, as a woman who studied, you know, women in the 16th century, I mean, I know for a fact that what people believe and how that affects the way people live is absolutely mutable and um, utterly transformable. You know, I mean, even just even just 150 years ago, you know, women used to just faint all the time, <laughs> in part because we all had corsets on, and you know, um, I mean, not all of us, but like many women wore corsets, which would constrict your breathing. Um, and, you know, never got exercise or fresh air or whatever. But, you know, this, so there were all of these cultural practices that, you know, hurt women's bodies. And then these beliefs about women's um, over-emotionalism and the way emotions affected women's bodies and this sort of complex, you know, bounded together to make it actually a fact that women would faint often, right? But, I don't know. I mean, I fainted once from the heat, but I have never, I mean, I don't know people who faint. (laughs) Like fainting isn't a thing for women anymore. And fainting seems like a very sort of primal biological response that couldn't possibly have anything to do with culture, but it absolutely does. Um, So something even that, that deep, like a physical response, like fainting, um, you know, is is transformed by the transformation of our values and our beliefs and our practices with, you know, different economies and different ways of talking and different ways of living. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I think that honestly, climate communication 
that thinks that the job is to appeal to people's values is actually only doing part of the task that we need to do. Very, very interesting. Now, you mentioned uh, this uh, facilitate awareness and uh, gender awareness about global warming, uh, but moving beyond that to, to, to actual fossil fuels and mm-hmm. the, the source of the problem in some way. I'm just wondering, uh, in terms of your linguistic and, and maybe rhetorical analysis, this movement from uh, is, there, is it happening, is it not happening, uh, are humans responsible, to uh, more and more people getting on board, even mm-hmm. if it's just rhetorically, that yes, there is a problem, but actually the solution is, and this is where the, the debate now is, and this is mm-hmm. where the rhetoric is now being at its most uh, elaborate, shall we say, in terms of, well, actually, it's carbon capture. Actually, no, it's gas as a transition. I actually, it's right. actually it's your own carbon footprint, as you say, um, right. and, and tremendous energy going into you know how we solve the problem and and who's going to be you know responsible for that and and, and, and at some level as well, you know the right. financial rewards of that for some corporations as well. Right. No, that's exactly right. Um, no, that's exactly right, and you know, the fossil fuel industry is an incumbent industry. It's well intertwined with all of the halls of power, um, governmental, cultural, economic, et cetera. So, you know, they're very much dominating um, our imagination of what solutions could look like. um, And they're doing everything they possibly can to try to have the world continue to use fossil fuels for as long you know, as long as they can sustain that economy. Um, But as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is life or death, right? I mean, not just for one person, but for, you know, potentially billions of people. And indeed for, as far as we know, like life in the universe. (laughs) So, So as far as I'm concerned, my, I don't understand why the number one priority is to bring carbon emissions down to zero as quickly as possible without causing any sort of immediate damage to human beings. Like, I mean, I know that sounds like an absurd question. Like, why don't we just do this? Um, I mean, I understand why we're not doing it, but it just, to me, I feel like, you know, if you're standing on the tracks and a speeding train is coming towards your children, your child who's standing with you, you don't just stand there and think, well, should I go to the left? Should I go to the right? Should I just throw my kid off and jump in the other direction? Should we go together? No, you just, you act and you get off the darn track. And that's what the climate crisis is. That's what global heating is. It's a train that is speeding toward us, not so that it'll hit us in 150 years and 200 years, you know, seven generations ahead. Now, right now, in my son's lifetime, in the lifetime of the children of whoever, whoever is listening to this podcast. And we need to jump off the train. We need to act right now. Yeah, yeah. for me, for sure. A, a train coming right at you, you, you jump right out of the way. But some of these problems are, are, are deeply complex. They're, they're very intractable. And, and whatever we do, it's, it's not going to have any impact for at least 20 years uh, in terms of the climate system. So, so are we talking about a 20-year emergency with special government powers over this time? We're all checking the internet to see if, if decarbonization targets have been met. Aren't, aren't there dangers with this emergency framing, the kind of thing Naomi Klein talks about in, in disaster capitalism? So I, 
you know, it's going to take decades at the at the least, at the minimum, to rebuild the fossil fuel system. And I don't just mean our energy system. I also mean our transportation system, our agricultural system, our financial system, all of the systems that um, support if we stop the fossil fuel economy, even if we stop today, but we have to get started today because it is an emergency. And one of the things we have to do, even understanding it's an emergency, is prevent, for example, governments from declaring emergency powers and making very various fascist moves, having declared emergency powers. I'm not saying that there aren't dangers to being in an emergency situation, but there is no way to understand the situation we're in today because the fossil fuel industry has delayed action for so long as anything but an emergency. I mean, you wouldn't say Hitler has invaded Poland. I mean, I guess the United States did say that. But if you're in a wartime situation, for example, if your life is being threatened by a wartime power, you don't sit back and say, let's not act because there are dangers to being in an emergency. You understand and accept the reality of what's happening and then bring all of your resources to bear to do this in a way that minimizes suffering and increases um, human flourishing knowing that this is a matter of survival at the same time. So for me, I think the emergency framing is really valuable because it does keep in the foreground of everyone's imagination that this is not, this is not about simply about, um, I don't know, historical progress or whatever you want to say, you know, this is about life or death on a planetary scale. So there's no way around that, even acknowledging the dangers of an emergency framing. At least that's how I see it. Um, yeah, no, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and uh, uh, absolutely essential because that's how it is increasingly being seen, I think. Well, and rightly so. Um, we've never had this much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere on this planet for the past three million years. And the last time carbon dioxide was this prevalent in the atmosphere, you know, our planet was basically savanna with water, you know, hundreds of miles in from the coasts with like a boreal forest up in the Arctic where alligators and camels lived. I mean, there is absolutely, and the transition into that kind of climate, considering the speed at which carbon dioxide has been put in the atmosphere by human beings, or at least by the fossil fuel economy, let's say, Considering the speed with which carbon dioxide has been put in the atmosphere by the fossil fuel economy, this is, as from in geological terms, asteroid impact fast. There is no smooth ecological transition to that planet. This is a cataclysm. But we're so, living it. We're already in it, aren't we? And we're, it's begun. Yes. In terms of communication, how, how what's your 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 recommendation, or how should we frame this? Because. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the communications challenge is to get everyone absolutely passionate and engaged with pushing governments to do whatever is necessary to end the fossil fuel system and draw our carbon and methane pollution down to zero as soon as humanly possible without creating suffering. What's next for you, Genevieve? Um, I'm going to, you know, just finish writing my book and push this New York Times campaign as far forward as I possibly can. And then, you know, 
continue to try to engage politically and get people motivated as much as I can. And then, you know, live my life and hope for the best. <laughs> and, and how can people support this campaign? Well, what people can do is sign our petition. We are developing a petition that we hope to bring to the New York Times to show them that people want them to stop promoting fossil fuels. People want them to stop helping fossil fuel companies to spread disinformation, that fossil fuel money should have no place in journalism in the climate crisis. So please sign our petition. Um, the website is called adsnotfittoprint.com, which is adsnotfittoprint.com, all one word. And you can also sign up for the mailing list of the campaign or not, either way. And your support will mean so much because I know signing a petition doesn't seem like much and it's just one signature, but that is how collective action happens. Each person does one little thing, but together it becomes a ocean together. Like just one drop of water is one drop but the ocean is made up of millions of drops. And so please be that drop today by signing our petition. A great campaign. And we will all sign that. And thank you so much for your time today, Genevieve, and all the fantastic work you're doing. And I wish you all the best of success with your work. Thank you so much, Fergal, for having me on. Also, this was a great conversation. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesises Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>